morning, everyone. So glad you're here. Time change Sunday. Good job. You got through it. Uh, if uh, you're newer to Lakeside, uh, for the first part of this year, we've been looking at the Gospel of John, and we've been in this deeper still series. We've been looking at the last half of John, and uh, if you've enjoyed these messages, you might go back uh, earlier in the year when we covered the first part of the Gospel of John, or earlier last year, uh, if you want to kind of see the first part of the Gospel of John. But this morning, we're in John chapter 17, and so what I'd like you to do is grab a Bible or find your Bible app and maybe make a, uh, you know, go ahead and find John 17 and have that ready here in a few moments. A lot of people ask, uh, what is the Christian church? Uh, you know, you see the name on the building, Christian church. Uh, you'll see it on different churches around town. Uh, a better question might be, who are the Christian churches? Uh, because we're not just a church, we're a, a larger movement, a larger group of churches. And uh, so one way to think about it is, you know, throughout history, there's always been spiritual lulls where churches lose a sense of identity and purpose. And maybe you've been part of a church where that happened. Uh, maybe that's one of the reasons you're here is because a church that you were part of kind of lost its focus. But you know the pattern, a congregation begins aging out, and there's few families and even fewer children that are coming. Uh, decisions to follow Christ start to slow to a trickle. I remember uh, one of the first churches that I preached in, they showed me the baptistry, and it was completely rusted, and they couldn't remember the last time they'd filled it. It had been years. Uh, leaders, often in a declining church, become increasingly controlling. The average congregant believes that the church exists to serve them, and so they double down a lot of times, and here's my needs, here's my expectations, here's my preferences, uh, and they want to be satisfied. Uh, the more inward focus the church grows, the more division seems to arise, people arguing or, or bickering about different things, love decreases, and the real toll is the spiritual plight of the larger community and the world gets ignored. So... Inevitably, what happens is God's Holy Spirit has to stir the church to kind of wake up and to get back to where it needs to get back to. And churches rediscover maybe the Father's heart for the world, and they begin to wake up to the needs of a new generation. Not unlike some of the things, I mean, I've been encouraging a lot of folks to go watch the Jesus movement, the Jesus Revolution movie. Uh, not unlike that, uh, the Holy Spirit begins to, to wake up and use his church. And it doesn't happen in one church or one denomination. Generally, when the Holy Spirit moves, uh, he moves across many religious tribes in many places and touches a lot of folks to get involved. And that's kind of a picture of how the Christian churches came into existence. Now, if you uh, have Google handy... And want to, if you're a history buff and you want to get into the details, you might go to Google and look up the Christian churches and churches of Christ. And you can read about some of the timelines and the figures and, and historical details and, and context in which uh, God stirred uh, the Christian church movement. Uh, you can also look for the restoration movement, that phrase. The Christian churches, churches of Christ, restoration movement. 
and you can really dig in. We have a membership class at Lakeside called Welcome to Lakeside, and we give a summary of some of the background of our church in that as well. But a couple highlights. The label Christian church was intended to be generic, uh, but also it was intended to be invitational. There is never a sense that, hey, we're the only Christians, we're the only people that have figured everything out and we're the elect or whatever, that kind of a th idea. But there was a sense that, hey, we're simply Christians. And maybe there's a way we can identify ourselves more simply. And so you know how it is with a lot of churches, they have an identity, they have a name. But a lot of churches have hyphenated names. And once you start getting to two or three or four hyphens, you know that there's a lot of division and a lot of history and a lot of baggage there, right? And so what would it look like to shed all that and to simply identify as Christ followers, as Christians? But more than that, you know, a lot of churches uh, codify their differences. They have creeds, they have beliefs, they have all these different things. And all that stuff becomes added baggage, what would it look like to set aside our creeds and have no creed but Christ? Uh, what would it look like to set aside all that stuff and have no book but the Bible? Uh, could there be a common ground, simply Christians, looking to Christ, abiding in his word? Are there some fundamentals that we can begin uh, to use to establish credibility, but also to kind of like rejuvenate what God wants the church to be? And so that's kind of a, a general sketch of how a movement gets started or uh, how the Christian churches and churches of Christ uh, got, their, got their sea legs, so to speak. This morning we're in John chapter 17. And it's in this chapter that we're on the eve of Christ's crucifixion and his death and his trial and all that stuff. And Jesus is praying so earnestly in these verses in chapter 17. And he's praying for the movement of believers that are being unleashed, right? So Jesus never planted a church, a congregation. He wasn't like the pastor of the Jerusalem church in a narrow sense. He could have. But he planted a movement of fishers of men. He started something that spawned many churches to be uh, created and, and, and whatnot. But it was the genius of the Christian church not to say, hey, let's invent some novelty. Let's find some gimmick. Uh, let's, let's reinvent some wheel. Let's create something new and innovative. Uh, it was the genius of the Christian church to say, maybe there's something quite ancient uh, that can be found in Jesus' prayer in John 17. A, a kind of charter or commission or common ground that could be found that could be the basis of flourishing again for God's people. So you had people that were Baptists, you had people that were Presbyterians, Methodists, you had people from many different backgrounds that found common ground in a more simpler name, Christ, and a more simpler foundation. No creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. And John 17 is explicitly kind of like the charter that a lot of Christian churches uh, have built their foundation upon. So I want to walk through this chapter and let you know that our, our churches, the churches of Christ, Christian churches, have been largely shaped by these verses. And I want to kind of give you an outline to kind of help you flesh out, like, what are the distinctives? And there's five. And the first distinctive is this. 
We are a gospel-entrusted movement. A gospel-entrusted movement. So Jesus is praying in this chapter, you know, yes, for himself in a way, but he's really praying about the gospel and about this movement that he's established and started, that God would allow it to prosper and flourish. So in John 17, verse 1, go ahead and take a look at that in your Bible. Jesus spoke these things. He looked up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone that you've given him. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and the one that you have sent Jesus Christ. I've glorified you on the earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So first and foremost, we'll keep this simple. These are simple principles. What is the gospel? Well, Jesus states it quite clearly in verse 3. This is eternal life, so that they may know you, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing the one he sent, who is the Son. That is the most basic definition of the gospel that you can find. Now, there is a lot loaded into the idea of knowing God, and Loaded into that is all the stuff Jesus has been talking about over the last several chapters. There's knowing, there's believing, there's trusting, there's loving, there's obeying, there's abiding. All of these ideas, there's a richness to knowing. So it's not a passive activity. It's a very active engagement, a very active pursuit, a seeking after God and, and, and looking to God to be that vital, sustaining reality, of that relationship in your life. So eternal life is found in the Father and in the Son. The, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being. No one's ever seen God, but Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. And in the face of Jesus, we behold the glory of God. All these ideas are cemented in the Gospel of John. Every Old Testament designation for the Father, Jesus assumes pretty much for himself in the Gospel of John. You know, Jesus, uh, you know, God was the great I am. He revealed himself as the great I am to Moses. And Jesus said, hey, before Abraham, you know, I am. Uh, God is the shepherd of Israel. Jesus says, well, I'm the great shepherd. God provided manna and bread from heaven. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. On and on it goes. But to know the Father through the Son is eternal life. John 3.16 is a passage that many, some people write it on their foreheads during football games. You'll see it written on someone's chest or whatever. But John 3.16 is a very foundational gospel statement as well. And so John 17.3 echoes John 3.16. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Anyone who believes. Do you see how open-ended that is? Anyone who believes. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the gospel, that eternal life is available to all who would believe, trust, know, love the Father and the Son. Now, what did Jesus do with this gospel, with this message? Verse 4, I have glorified you on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. I've completed the work. Wouldn't it be such a delight and pleasure if at the end of our life we could have a sense of closure that we did what God asked of us, that we completed those works that he created for us from the foundations of the earth, that sense of like, wow, well done, good and faithful servant. You gave me authority over people. I finished well. I glorified your name. I made your name, your salvation known. Uh, and so Jesus finished well. But what is the focus of this prayer is that a critical new stage is beginning. This gospel, if you think of it as the, the ball, right? You're marching it up the field. You got to get it through the red zone, get it across the goal line. Jesus did his part. But now that ball, that baton has been handed off. And a new critical stage is coming that Jesus is praying about. And it's in verse 6. That now the disciples and the apostles are receiving that gospel and have been entrusted with that gospel. I've revealed your name to the people that you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they've kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you because I've given them the words you gave me. They've received them and have known for certain that I came for you. Uh, that's the gospel, eternal life, is to know the Father and the one he sent. They've believed, you know, that you've sent me. So the gospel is now being entrusted to these 12, and Judas is going to fall away. So there will be 11. The gospel is being entrusted to them. But what's hanging over this text is yet another succession in gospel ministry. Because just like Jesus, the apostles, you know, Jesus died on the altar of his own mission. He entrusted the word to the disciples. In the same way in time, the apostles would die on the altar of Jesus' mission as well. And they would go on to enter glory. And what does the apostle Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 15? He says, I want to make something clear for you. The gospel I preached to you, which you've now received, on which you've now taken your stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold to the message, that is, unless uh, you've believed in vain, I passed on to you what was of first importance, what I also received. And here it is. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And then he appeared to another 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Go talk to them. Most of them are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the other apostles. And last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. I've passed this gospel 
onto you. It's taken its effect in your life. You have made your stand. You have believed on this gospel. So the Apostle Paul says a person should think of us as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. And it's required that managers be found faithful. Jesus prays and he says, I've glorified you, now glorify me. The apostles reached a point where they said, we've glorified you, now we want to enter glory. You've entrusted something precious and sacred to us. We've been faithful with it. Corinthians, now we've passed it on to you. Ephesians, we've now passed it on to you. Lakeside, we've now passed it on to you. 2 Timothy 2, 2 and 3. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, give it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also and share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Pay the price to move this gospel up the field through the red zone into the goal, you know, across the goal line. Pay the price, suffer, whatever it takes. Jesus was faithful. The apostles were found faithful. And now it's our turn. We are a gospel entrusted movement. But the question I want to flip onto you is, will you carry the ball next? I have the joy and privilege to carry the ball for a time. But you have to receive and carry it forth yourself. Will you prove faithful to the gospel that's been entrusted to you? Will you be able to say before the Father one day, I've completed the work that you gave me to do? We have to carry this gospel to the ends of the earth. It is not a one man or one woman job. It is a every member, it is a priesthood of all believers kind of work. Every single one of us are carrying that gospel to our dinner tables, into our homes, into our schools, into our business places, into every nook and cranny of society. God has given us a trust that we would prove faithful with it. Now, a second dynamic of this movement, a charter, if you will, is that we are a divinely protected movement. Verse 9, Jesus is praying. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, not yet. I'm praying for those that you've given me. Because they're yours, the 12, the disciples. Everything I have is yours. And everything you have is mine. And I'm glorified in those things. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me. So that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you had given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. We know that within a very short time after Jesus' resurrection, you read the book of Acts, we know that within a very short time the disciples began suffering immensely for the gospel. In Corinthians, Paul mentions all the ways that he personally suffered for the gospel. We know from church tradition that every one of the apostles, with maybe the exception of John, I mean, he was boiled in a pot of oil, somebody said, but, you know, I mean, that's 
All the others were martyred in some very cruel way. All the apostles went to the death as witnesses of Christ. They were martyrs in that way. And Peter, you know, might have even died in a more cruel way than Christ himself because he was hung upside down. He didn't want to die the same way Jesus did. He didn't see himself worthy to die that way. You read these stories. All around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ are subject to terrific persecution. We are probably exceptional at this time for now in that regard. So how are we to understand this prayer of protection? Because it seemed like the apostles in Acts and beyond were very exposed to this hostile world. And Jesus even said a chapter ago that that in this world you're going to have trouble, right? So I understand Jesus' prayer here to be a prayer about perseverance, In these last days, there are many people falling away. I don't know if you pay attention, but look at all the high-profile ministries, high-profile servants of God, men and women, people that have done great things, whether in the pulpit or through a ministry or in song, have done legitimate great things serving God, but who are now casualties, if you will, uh, who have fallen away. A number of our Christian churches are reeling from the fallout of pastoral or other types of church failures. It can be very discouraging to look at all the damage and destruction that is done. Judas was the first of Jesus' followers to fail in an epic way. And he made assumptions and he thought that his actions were going to force the hand of Jesus to Uh, become a nationalistic power force and overthrow the Romans. And he had his own kind of thinking about the kind of Messiah Jesus would be. And he was into power and control and greed. And when his plans didn't work out the way his ambitions hungered for, you know, he was humiliated, he killed himself, right? And Satan got a prize. Uh, The evil one doesn't just seek death for God's servants. He seeks a kind of double death. So you think of Job, and Satan wanted Job's very life, and God restricted that from happening. He got Job's family. But what Satan really wanted was Job's soul. He wanted the deeper death, the double death, right? He wanted righteous Job to denounce God and turn away from God. Paul had a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan. Paul, uh, Satan wanted Paul to denounce, you know, the father. But, you know, Paul realized, hey, this is a, a source of grace and dependence for me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to persevere through this. Peter observed how the devil prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. In what way is God protecting us? I think in a Romans 8 kind of way. That no matter what happens, and there's a lot of things that can happen that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not trouble, not persecution, not sword, not famine, hunger. You know, we're not, you know, we're exposed to all those kinds of things, but none of it is going to separate us from oneness with the Father. What is Jesus praying for? That they would remain one, Father, as I and you are one. May they be one with us. May they be one in you. We are a divinely protected movement, but 
will you pray? Jesus is asking the Father to protect. And if Jesus has to pray to ask the Father to protect and to preserve, right, we need to be praying and protecting for God to do the same for us and for each other. Do you pray for your church? Do you pray for the churches in your community? Do you pray for the capital C church throughout the world, especially the persecuted church? Do you pray for your your, your leaders, your pastors, your teachers? When you see a servant of God making an impact, do you pray explicitly for that person? You know, we're asking God to protect his movement and to preserve it. And I'm telling you, it is under assault daily. And the casualties are piling up daily. We need to pray more than ever before in this regard. And I know many of you do because you tell me uh, that you pray for the church or, or even myself in my role. Now, a third kind of part of this movement is all of these are important. We're a word-sanctified movement. A word-sanctified movement. Verse 13, Jesus says, I'm coming to you. Father, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I've given them your word. And the world hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, right? But that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. The word is synonymous for truth. And the word, the truth, is our lifeline. It is not just our heritage, our inheritance, something that's been entrusted to us, It is our lifeline. If there's one thing that sustains the movement of Jesus, yes, the Father, yes, the Son, yes, the Holy Spirit, but if there's one thing that we can physically, tangibly lock hold of, take hold of ourselves, it's the Word of God. It's this right here. This is our lifeline. So there's never a greater hope for a movement of Jesus than when his people begin abiding in his words. Uh, Laura's dad and I were at a church uh, over the weekend and uh, or on Saturday all day we were meeting with the church and its leaders and the most encouraging sign I saw is that they had a couple of leaders and, and praise God they were elders and they had their Bibles and their Bibles were worn out like I was like that's a very hopeful sign that's what I told one of the leaders to see that right there there is never greater hope for the movement of Jesus than when his people begin abiding in his words. Uh, When I read about the origins of the Methodist movement, uh, John Wesley, what was the spark that ignited a whole awakening and revival? It was ordinary people, coal miners, whatever, lunchbox Joes taking their word and during their breaks and after work and in their homes and from house to house, what were they doing? They were abiding in the words of Jesus. You know, the Lutheran movement. Some of you have a connection to the Lutheran movement. Well, what was the underpinnings of the Lutheran movement? You had Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest, 
who decided that the word of God needed to be translated into and put into the language, into, into the hands of ordinary people. And when that word was put in the hands of ordinary people in a way that they could understand, a whole reformation broke out, right? Or the Presbyterian movement, these elder-led congregations, or the Christian churches and churches of Christ, the Calvary Jesus People movement movie that I'm uh, encouraging everyone to watch. People come alive and they bear much fruit because they're abiding in the word. We are a word-sanctified movement. But the moment people jettison the scriptures, no longer keeping his commandments, no longer obeying, the days of that group or tribe or movement are numbered. Jesus is saying, I've given them a lifeline, your word, and I pray that they continually be sanctified by it. I started thinking of all the benefits of the word of God. The word of God gives us new birth, all right? The word of God sustains us like bread. We don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says the word sanctifies us, which means we might be cloudy, we might be fuzzy, we might be impure, we might have rival allegiances or things, weeds, rocks in our lives, and the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, purifies us, and reminds us of what's important. The Holy Spirit strengthens us. The Word of God strengthens us. That best part of us, of what we can be, the Holy Spirit fans that into full flame. The Word saves the movement of Jesus, right? Uh, something lately that I've, I've been fascinated with is whenever you start to understand what God wants to do in the world through you, that same word that convicts you of your mission also equips you and qualifies you for that mission. Anything that God asks of you, he'll teach you how to do through his word. The wisdom that we need to face the challenges of today are right in that word. In fact, uh, we've started doing some uh, catalyst training at Lakeside on Monday nights. And we're using the word actually to equip us and qualify us, not just to discover the work that God has for us, but to equip us and qualify us to do it. And so every week we're in the word, uh, we're meeting with uh, different groups of folks, uh, and that's the methodology. The word protects, the word guides us, and it has always been a word-sanctified movement. So the question for you is, will you abide in the word? <laughs> will you get into the word? Will you start tearing that thing up and bending pages and marking it up and, and getting it off the page and into your heart? Will you abide in that word of Jesus? It is our heritage and, and lifeblood to do so. Now, fourthly, we're a relationally driven movement. Verse 20, I'm praying not only for these, the disciples, but also for the people that are going to believe in me through their word, the church. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they, the church, be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Uh, I've given them the glory that you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me that the world may be completely one, that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. 
a driving conviction is that the first and most important responsibility we have, not just to ourselves, but to our fellow man, is to make sure people are tangibly abiding relationally with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Tangibly abiding, receiving his word, knowing him, that that becomes the foundation for every single person. We spend so much time and energy and we think people will abide in a worship service or a small group or some program of the church or some activity that we're doing. We can be really great at keeping people very busy. But at the end of the day, there is only going to be one thing that matters, and it's the gospel. Do you know the Father, and do you know the Son that he sent into the world? And are you filled with his Holy Spirit? That is going to be the only thing that matters at the end of the day. If eternal life is knowing the Father, Son, and Spirit, a person's relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit ought to be our driving concern. If people check all the other busy boxes that we give them, but they don't have a tangible, expressible, substantive relationship with God of of abiding, we have failed people in the worst possible way. The Great Commission... Go into all the nations and make disciples of all the nations, right? What's your first order of priority? You baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You resolve a person's allegiance, their oneness with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when that foundation is built in a person's life, then you teach on that foundation. Then to obey all the things that Christ commanded, which is a lot. But if that foundation is not right, everything else that you might try to build on a person's life, it's like building on sinking sand. The the, the abiding relationship of a person with God, that has to be foundational. Discipleship starts with a relational shift of a person loving God, loving the Son, and loving Spirit. It doesn't stop there, by the way. Once you have the foundation of loving God, it overflows into loving people. And so Jesus' concern in this prayer is not just relational oneness with the Father, but that we be one also with each other. That the love of God spill over and causes us to have profound love for each other. But this whole thing is about relationships, not religion. You hear that before, right? It's about not engagement and participation. And all. It's about participation in God himself, in Christ. So we're a relationally driven movement. Will you make love tangible? Your love for God, your love for people, will you make it tangible? Uh, A last thing I'll mention is we're a world-changing movement. Verse 24. And Jesus has been praying for this, but he kind of continues. I want those that you've given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you've given me because you've loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. Do we care? The world has not known you. Righteous Father. However, I've known you, and they've known that you sent me. I made your name known to them, and will continue to make it known, so that the love you've loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. This is Jesus' charge to us as the church. That the world 
has not known the Father and the Son, but we have. But that's not a place of privilege. That's a place, yes, of privilege in a way, but it's a place of responsibility and calling for us. Now we need to make Christ known to the ends of the earth, to the world. There was a church that uh, was having a meeting and it was an elders meeting. I heard this the other day. And they spent 30, 40 minutes talking about whether to put cushions on the toilet seat in the church. (laughs) And uh, this person's comment was, you know, we're worried about people's comfort on a toilet in the church while the whole world is, you know, I won't say everything that they said, but the whole world, right, is getting flushed down the tubes and we're worried about all the wrong things. We are a world-changing movement. And if we don't care about knowing God and making him known, who's, who's going to step into that vacuum and do what God has asked us to do? So I hope this is helpful for you to think about. John 17 is our charter. We're a gospel and trusted movement. Will you now carry the ball? We're a divinely protected movement. Will you now pray for our perseverance and preservation? We're a word-sanctified movement. Will you abide in that word? We're a relationally driven movement. Will you make your love for God and people tangible? We're a world-changing movement. Will you engage the harvest field that God has put in your life before your very eyes? The first step into the harvest for the disciples was they saw that Jesus had compassion for the crowds, that Jesus saw how people were harassed and helpless. They saw that value modeled by someone else and they got curious and Jesus told them, pray to the Lord of the harvest yourselves that he'll raise up workers. Are you willing to have the boldness to say that prayer? That God help me make you known, raise me up, qualify me, equip me as your worker. If you want to be equipped and qualified to matter greatly for God, on the connection card, Uh, Why don't you just make a a note, you know, fill out a prayer request. Maybe that's what I'm really saying. Go to the app, download the app, fill out a prayer request. Say, I want to matter for God. I want to be equipped. And we'll, we'll equip you. We will equip you as a church. We will make that promise to you and we will fulfill it. We will equip you. If you make yourself available, we'll equip you. And if that's where you're at this morning, uh, please mark that. Dear Father, we come to you and we know eternal life. We have believed, we've trusted, we've given ourselves to you. If we haven't, I pray that you would stir those that haven't yet to pledge their lives to you in baptism to resolve their allegiance to you. But for those of us that have resolved that allegiance, you've entrusted us with this movement, with this gospel. And we pray that we can make you famous, that we can glorify you by completing the work you gave us, that we follow the example of the Son. That's our simple prayer request this morning. Allow us to complete that work and glorify you as the Son, as your apostles, as the early church did. May we carry this forth with our faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.